0: Let's um, turn in our Bibles to Matthew 19. We're going to read together, well, I'll read for you, uh, verses 13 through 26. Matthew 19, 13 through 26. This is God's word for us today. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And Behold, a man, um, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, oh, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess. Give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's pray together. Lord, do the supernatural thing that you do, Lord, by being with your people, by speaking to us in your word, by changing our lives, even in ways we don't see coming. It is a joy and a treasure and a glory to open your word together. God, do that which only you can do. Save souls, shape lives, change us to make us instruments in your hand to display your glory this week. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, Friends, we have too much work to do and too many glorious truths to see in today's passage to spend time on a pithy introduction, so you don't get one. Let's find four points in this passage that are going to show us really two responses, people to Jesus, Jesus to people that are a little bit different, but four points if you want to make room for it. And we're going to jump right in with point number one. Come to Jesus with faith alone. Come to Jesus with faith alone. Look at verses 13 to 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, our passage here opens, friends, with a beautiful picture. This is the kind of scene that sappy paintings and precious moments, figurines are made of. People are bringing little ones to Jesus, asking for him to lay his hands on them and to bless them. And the Savior does. Now, the disciples try to get the crowds of people to leave Jesus alone, but the Savior has none of it. And I'm sure the disciples are trying to help, they're trying to protect Jesus' space, but the Savior rebukes them sharply. Note that the people here aren't doing something unusual. This isn't weird. It was common for parents to bring a child to be prayed over by a priest or by a teacher or just some old person. In Luke chapter two, the infant Jesus is blessed and prophesied over and held by Simeon and Anna, right? And and the blessings we're talking about here is not some sort of sacramental infusing of grace kind of blessing like the Roman Catholic Church would suggest. But it's just a sweet practice of parents asking someone to pray God's blessing over a child. It's very much here like what we do when we pray over a family and their little ones during a parent and child dedication service that we do right during our worship services sometimes. And even before we learn the key, because there's a point from this passage... Let's see something beautiful about Jesus here. He lets ordinary people come up to him. Jesus reaches out and he holds little babies. He prays God's blessing over them. Jesus is not aloof. Jesus is not harsh. Jesus is not selling autographs at 150 bucks a pop. He's loving. He's tender. Children weren't afraid of Jesus. Jesus they they ran to jesus they trusted jesus implicitly and his gentle kindness toward the children toward the weak toward the ordinary sets him apart really from any religious leader you can think of can you imagine any religious leader in history having this kind of kindness toward children and receiving this kind of love from children no way Well, Jesus gives a reason to the disciples why the children should be free to come to him. And the reason Jesus gives here is in powerful and deliberate contrast to the story that's going to follow. Jesus said in verse 14, let the children come to me because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Nothing more than he said a chapter earlier in chapter 18, verse 4. Jesus said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Back in chapter 18, Jesus was using the concept of a little child as an illustration for his disciples. Children in the passage were they weren't seeking greatness. The little ones were seen as humble. They were seen as helpless. They were seen as totally dependent on other people to take care of them. And it's that kind of humility the Savior taught us that makes for the greatest of disciples. In much the same way, Jesus tells us right here that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the little ones and the same humble dependence is in view. How do you get to heaven? You get to heaven when you realize there's absolutely nothing in you that could earn your way there. Think about some of the little ones in our midst. Owen, Zoe, Gabriel, Carter. Which one of those could survive on their own with no help? Which of them could cook a meal? Which of them could honestly get a drink of water without help? So how do they get what they need to live? Well, Some of them scream. (laughs) Some of them can talk. They rely on mom and dad though, right? They they rest in our care. Without the care of parents, they couldn't survive, but when they need us and they let us know their needs, and some of them let us know their needs boisterously. What do parents do? What do good parents do? We meet those needs as best we can. Come to Jesus in faith alone. One of the key tenets of the Protestant Reformation is the doctrine of sola fide, faith alone. And the point is that all who are saved are saved through faith in the finished work of Jesus, apart from any contributing works of their own. Simply put, if you're saved, you're saved by what Jesus has done and not at all by anything you are or you do. So everyone who wants to be saved comes to Jesus in faith alone. Have you come to Jesus in faith alone, by the way? Have you seen that you are totally spiritually bankrupt and hopeless on your own? Have you come to Jesus like a child comes to a parent to ask for what it needs? If not, I would urge you, don't don't think. Don't think you can do anything to clean yourself up. Don't think you can do anything to make yourself good. Just come to Jesus like a little kid asking for a good parent's help. Come in faith alone and you find life. How many of you are children of God already? Let this remind you that you were saved not because you did something good on your own or because you worked your way into God's favor. Let it humble you because what you've seen yourself compared to is a helpless child. Let it humble you and make you grateful to God for the work of Jesus on your behalf. And now, let's look and let's see a contrast in this story. We're going to see not a humble child next, but the opposite. Point number two, recognize that your goodness, your goodness never earns God's favor. Recognize that your goodness never earns God's favor. Start at verse 16. And behold, the man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How different does that look? We had helpless children resting in the arms of Jesus. Now we've got a young man walk up with the question about what good thing he has to do to earn his way to heaven. This young man comes to Jesus and he's respectful in his speech and he seems to want to do what's right. He just wants to know what sacred action to perform, what ceremony to observe, what incantation to chant, what gift to give in order to put him over the top and make himself pleasing to God. This young man's thought process mirrors the way most of us think most of the time. We assume we can do it. We assume we're strong enough and that we're smart enough to figure things out. We think if we're left to ourselves, well, good people please God, bad people get in trouble with God, right? That's how the world works. But then look at what Jesus says in verse 17. (laughs) He said to him, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So here... Does that not feel like a weird answer to y'all? A little bit? Jesus wants to know, why are you talking about good? Why are you thinking I know anything about good? Now, this is not, by the way, Jesus denying that he's good. This is a way for the Savior to give the man the chance to see that Jesus is the only good man who ever lived. Because Jesus is the only one who's God in human flesh who lived a life of godly perfection. Jesus is the only sinless savior. And this man has the opportunity to say, well, you're good because you're good and none of us are. Don't you kind of wonder if there might have been a pause there while the man doesn't answer Jesus's goodness question? Either way, Jesus points the man to scripture. Are you looking for a new way to God? Obey the commandments that you know are from God. Now, this is a good spot for us to stop and for us to remember this. The written word of God is your way to know God and God's will. So many people out there drive themselves to distraction looking for a special, secret, spectacular way to know new things from God. Things that God hasn't yet revealed. But, listen to me. The Lord has already given to us everything we need to know him and to obey him. And he gave that to us in the Bible. Don't look for experiences to show you God. Don't look for supernatural signs to tell you how to please God. Just read the word of God and rightly apply the word of God to your life. The Bible is how you hear from God 18 to 20. He said to him, "Which ones? Which commandments? Jesus said, "You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself." The young man said to him, "All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Now, Jesus said obey the commands, so the young man, he was like, well, uh, just which commands do you mean exactly I'm supposed to follow? Which commandments am I supposed to obey to please God? And Jesus, on his part, cites first a set of commands from the Ten Commandments, right? He points to commandments numbers six through nine, if you're keeping track. Don't kill, don't steal, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. Then Jesus jumps up to commandment number five, honoring your father and your mother, And then he goes to Leviticus 19.18. This is great. Love your neighbor as yourself. So two things have to stand out to you here about what Jesus says and what Jesus doesn't say. What stands out is that Jesus cites the easiest commands to obey if you just take them at surface level. Right? These are pretty measurable commands. For the most part, you know if you have murdered or committed adultery or stolen or lied. We've got a pretty good guess if we've disrespected our parents. And we think we know when we're failing in these areas. We know if we haven't loved other people, and been nasty, right? But what Jesus doesn't say is also interesting. Jesus doesn't cite the first four commandments. The commandments most focused on your personal devotion to the Lord, your heart for God. It's as if Jesus knows already that this man's not really wanting God. He just wants to perform enough outwardly to avoid being in trouble with God. He doesn't like God or want God. He just doesn't want to be in trouble. This man wants to impress God more than be loved by God. And Jesus also doesn't point to commandment number 10, the one about not coveting your neighbor's possessions. And I think we're going to see why in just a moment. I think we're going to see that that issue, valuing this worldly wealth above comforts, valuing that above God, that's what's going to turn this man away from God. But before we see what comes next, look at what the young man says really closely. Verse 20, the young man says something that simply is not true if you know the heart behind the law of God. He says he's kept all the commands Jesus just cited ever since he was a little kid. He's kept them all. Can you imagine standing eye to eye with the Son of God and declaring with a straight face that you have perfectly kept his commands? you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that there's no way that this young man has been perfect in the commands that Jesus listed. There's no way that this guy has kept all the anger and the lust of his life in perfect check for all of it. There's no way that he's always treated everyone fairly, that he's always valued the good of his neighbors over his own. There's no way that he's done it perfectly perfectly. You know what? The young man knows it. He knows he knows he hasn't done it. How do we know? Because he knows something's wrong deep down inside. And that's why he asks the question he asks in verse 20. What do I still lack? What do I still lack? He knows he's missing something. He knows he's lacking in something that he needs in order to be right with God. He's feeling at some level the conviction of sin. He's seeing the truth of God that all human beings actually see. There's a holy God and we do not live up to his standards no matter how hard we try. Do you know that that's true? that you and no one you can ever dream of has ever lived up to the perfection of God. You know it because the Bible says every human being knows it. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20 read this way. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Somehow, friends, giving given to all of us by God. We see that we don't live up to God's perfection. We may try to suppress the truth that we're imperfect before a holy God. But all people everywhere have already been shown by God that they are not meeting God's standard. All are without excuse before the Lord. And Let me just say to you deep down, you know it. You know what guilt feels like you know what shame feels like. And even the people who pretend they don't have it and don't feel it, when they're alone in the darkness of a room and nobody's eyes are on them, they know. And even those who look to the law of God, the word of God, to try to please God on their own. I'm going to do good. I'm going to obey the commands. Those people also find out that their own goodness is not enough and it's not enough by a long shot. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Recognize that your goodness never earns God's favor. That's the thing to learn here. You might be good. You might be really good at being good in general but you and I have never once lived up to the perfection of a holy God. He's infinite in His beauty. He's infinite in His knowledge. He's infinite in His glory. He's infinite in His holy perfection. And you and I can't match that. And all of our best attempts, when done apart from God's way, under God's grace, fall infinitely short. They're not impressive to God. Our best works are like filthy rags when compared to the the perfect standard of God. So we have to grasp that our goodness has never contributed to our standing before God, not even once. And that's not because God's mean, but it's because God is holy. And when you grasp what holy really means, you'll see how far short we've all always fallen. We're going to be forgiven. If we're going to be okay with God, it has to come from something outside of us. It has to come from something other than any good we could ever do. Third point desire God above all. Desire God above all. Verse 21 and 22. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In those earlier verses, Jesus didn't do a lot of teaching. He allowed the young man to see for himself that he lacked what it takes to make it to heaven. Even when the man professed his own obedience to the law, the man knew there was something missing. He was looking for a key. He was looking for a secret. He was looking for a special command that others don't know that would vault him up the ladder into heaven. Now Jesus teaches and now Jesus touches the man where it hurts. Now Jesus shows what's lacking in the man's quest for heaven And what Jesus shows that man is true for you and me, too. But what Jesus shows may not be what you think it is. You've got to read this carefully in the light of the rest of Scripture so as not to form a wrong conclusion from the words of the master here. Jesus tells the man that if he wants to go to heaven, he should go sell everything he owns, give the money away, and then come and follow Jesus as the disciple. Is that not what Jesus said? That is, right? Okay. Now, we better keep in mind a couple of truths or we've got issues, right? First, this is not the same command that Jesus gives to all wealthy folks in the Bible. Jesus did not say this to Zacchaeus. Nor did Jesus command this of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and they were definitely well off. From other scriptures, we know giving away your money, even giving away your life savings, will never purchase salvation for you. Paul says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, dying as a martyr, but have not love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.3 So there is clearly more going on here than a call for the selling of all of our goods. By the way, also consider the command Jesus didn't cite for the man and the list of things to obey. Jesus did not point to the sin of coveting. Remember? But here we see that Jesus presses really hard against this man's love of wealth and possession. It's as if Jesus saved that particular commandment, that particular sin, the one that the man is most consumed by, because that's the linchpin for that man's whole heart. What Jesus is up to is really shown uh, in the man's response. This young man, this man eager to know, oh, what do I need to do? I want to go to heaven. I want to earn my way to heaven. He comes to a point of crisis. For him, the crisis has to do with his possessions. But it's more. The crisis has to do with the man's heart. Will this man want Jesus more than he wants things? Will he want Jesus more than status, wealth, security, safety, whatever it is that ties him to his fortune? And You know what we see? He doesn't want God. He doesn't want Jesus more than that. The man hears what is required, decides the price is too high, turns his back, and walks away. What should we learn? Desire God above all. At the end of the day, the young man was faced with a dilemma. Will he yield himself, all of himself to the Lord, or will he cling to his possessions, his rights of ownership? Will he turn from the Lord? Does he want God or does he want things more? And in the end, we see that he chose self above the Lord. And the lesson to learn is that if you want heaven, want God. Want God more than you want your stuff, want God more than you want your freedom. Want God more than you want to know the answer to all the hard questions? Want God more than you want status? Want God more than you want fleeting pleasures or earthly comforts? Want God more than you want things to go easy for you? Want God above all things? When we look at the issue of salvation or lostness, the question is always a question of repentance and faith. Always. And it's always been so. Faith asks you, asks us, do do we believe that we're sinners and that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, can and will give us the forgiveness we need? Faith asks that question. Repentance asks the question are you willing to lay down the right of ownership of your life and give it to Jesus? Are you willing to make Jesus your master? Are you willing to follow Him and treasure Him above everything else? Are you willing to trust Him? Are you willing to obey His word? Are you willing to submit to His authority? That is the question of repentance. And all that requires that you want God more than you want other stuff if you want heaven. Does this mean that if you want to go to heaven, you have to sell all your stuff? Probably not. But it does mean that you surrender to the Lord and allow Him to have the right to tell you to sell all your stuff if He wants to. See the point? It does mean that you're willing to let go of anything in your life that moves you away from glorifying Him. Let me give us a couple examples. I, I hate giving examples. The preaching classes tell me I'm supposed to, though. Let me tell you why I hate giving examples. Because the more I narrow the example, the more of you think you can dodge it. Don't do that. So if I don't give the example that pokes your heart, be smart enough to find the one that does. Fair enough? To make Jesus your Lord means you agree to obey his commands, correct? Okay. So... Let's go here. Jesus says, let's do something simple. God says never be drunk. So if you are given to the point of drinking to the point of drunkenness, if that's something that you do, you might have to give up drinking altogether as a way for you to surrender to Jesus. Now, does that mean everybody has to? No, but you might. Jesus strongly restricts divorce, like we saw last week. So, if you want to be submitted to Jesus, you, if you are married, have to view your marriage as the property of God. And you've got to let go of things that do harm to your marriage, even if you think the things that do harm to your marriage are your right to have. And that will look different for you than for others. Jesus is clear that lust is deadly. That lust is dangerous for the Christian. You guys know that's true, right? So in order to surrender to Jesus, you might have to avoid watching TV and movies with content that could lead you into sin. Maybe you have to give up TV and movies altogether. Not everybody does, but you might. Are you willing to let Jesus be that kind of Lord of your life? Our worldly philosophy says that God owes... that we have the right to know everything and be able to answer every question. Are you willing to follow and trust Jesus enough to know that you don't get the answers to everything? Remember, Jesus has already told us if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to go to heaven than have your hand. If you want... God more than things, you'll be ready to cut out of your life the things that separate you from the Lord. That's essential for us, folks. This is exactly the point Jesus is making with the young man who walked away. By the way, do you hear that? Do you hear what I just said? He walked away. He looked at Jesus. He looked at eternal life. And then he looked at his bank balance and he turned his back and he chose the cash over eternal life. Now, let me ask you, what would you choose? Is there something about which you would say to God, if I can't have this, I don't want you. Is there something in your life you would say, God, if I can't have this now, I don't even want heaven. Friends, desire God above all things. Fourth point, last point. Praise God alone for salvation. Praise God alone for salvation. (laughs) 23 to 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The Savior watches the young man walk away. Which, by the way, as I take a dangerous side point here, shows us how different Jesus is than many modern churches. I once heard John MacArthur say, if the rich young man from this chapter had walked into many of our modern churches, walked down the aisle during an invitation, he wouldn't have been sent away. (laughs) He'd have been taken through a new members class, voted in on the spot, and given new responsibilities. (laughs) He wants to know what to be saved. They say, great, pray this and you're in. And by the way, pray this in your inn is true if it involves faith and repentance. But the problem is, he didn't have genuine faith or genuine repentance. He didn't want God. Not really. Anyway, the young man walks away and the Savior says to his disciples, man, it is really hard for a person of wealth, for a person living with status and comfort to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus illustrates, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for this to happen. Now, just so you know, that's impossible. Camels don't fit through the eyes of needles. So the disciples are really confused. Who then could be saved? Now, let me make a side note here. I remember... uh, my grandmother was reading to me out of her Sunday school quarterly. Did you guys ever go to churches that had Sunday school quarterlies? The little little, little booklets that do Sunday school t- lessons 13 weeks at a time? It was either out of one of those, by the way, or it was out of one of those, as I thought as a kid, one of those old people magazines. <laughs> and you all know them. You've seen them, I'm sure, right? That tell you little Bible stories, give you little devotion. They just brighten your day. And her little devotional said that, well, you see, what you don't know is that in Jerusalem, there used to be a gate called the eye of the needle. It was a small gate in the side. And if a camel was unloaded and got down on its belly, it could crawl through that gate. And that's what the means is the eye of the needle. Here's the problem. There has never once been a shred of historical evidence that such a gate could ever exist. That is a garbage story somebody made up, so as for Jesus' words to, Jesus's words not to say that it's impossible. It's horrid, false interpretation in which people come up with things to say, well, the one, I know the Bible says that, but it can't mean that, so let me make up something so it means something else. No, no, no. Jesus was illustrating dramatically that it is impossible for a rich man to enter heaven. And that fact should shake you, dear friends, because all of you sitting in this room today are rich. When compared to the rest of the globe's population, you have more money, You have more food, you have better homes, you have better clothing, you have more reliable transportation, you have better health care, you have better communications than billions of other human beings. How many of you opened a smartphone to look at the sermon today? There's more technology in this than went up on the space shuttle the first time it entered orbit. There's more technology in this than landed man on the moon. Can you own a $700 phone and say, but I'm poor? You're rich, folks. Can you have all the food and all the clean water you could want and say, I'm poor? Can you sit in air conditioning and say, I'm poor? You're rich, folks. Whether you feel it or not, you're rich. So, this has to get your attention. Rich people don't go to heaven. Now, Jesus answers the disciples with a profound point, a point that we're going to wrap up with today. With man, this is impossible. For anybody to go to heaven, it's impossible. You can't make it to heaven, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's impossible for the rich to go to heaven with men. There is no hope. If you are left to yourself, all of us will prefer our freedom. All of us prefer our comfort. All of us will prefer our wealth. All of us will prefer our pleasures. All of us will prefer our own intellect. All of us will prefer our status. Above the God who made us, all of us would choose our own comforts over the God who made us if he left us to ourselves. Your sin naturally moves you away from the Lord and you will freely choose to turn your back on him, despising the grace that he would give us. It is impossible that we would ever be saved. Romans 8, 7 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Our hearts naturally, completely, willingly reject the Lord and the Lord's ways. It is impossible that we would want God on our own. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God does miraculous things. Things to bring about our salvation. God breathes lives and life into dead human hearts and he brings angry, selfish, aggressive sinners to himself. You better be glad about that because you wouldn't be saved if he didn't. Ephesians 2 verses 4, 5, then 8 and 9 say. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. The mystery and glory of our salvation is that we all would have run from God and we all would have treasured our possessions above God's grace. But if you're saved, you've got to recognize that God has done what is impossible for you. God made you alive together with Christ. God does this not through your own doing as verse nine, or verses 8 and 9 of, of, of Ephesians 2 say, but he does this mercifully, graciously as a gift as he enables you to desire what you could not desire, what you would not want to desire on your own. And, oh, I know that leads to a lot of questions, big questions of profound mysteries as to the ways of God. I can tell you this, that there's one response to this that has to be right. There's one response to this that has to be right. Praise God alone for salvation. If you're saved, give God great thanks and great praise. If you're saved, give God 100% of the glory. If you're saved, thank God, praise God alone, because he did the impossible in you. He got a camel through the eye of a needle in you, and that can't be done, but God did it. Now let's back away from this scene. The story's not over, by the way. But this is where I plan to stop. This is no surprise stopping point. Because the next verses and the next chapter beginning, the parable that begins it, they flow together. We'll do that next week, Lord willing. But as we back away from the scene right now, what are we supposed to think and what are we supposed to do? Come to Jesus in faith alone. You cannot work your way in. Recognize your goodness has never once earned God's favor. You cannot personally match the holiness of God. Desire God above all. Heaven, living forever in the presence of God, it's worth far more than anything you could ever keep and cling to in this life. Praise God alone for salvation. Because if you're saved, the Lord has done a miracle in your heart and God deserves every bit of that glory. But that last truth, that God does the miracle, by the way, that does not remove from you the responsibility to turn away from sin and trust in Jesus. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never come to Him for salvation, if you've never let go of your life, the command of God is that you do so. God orders it. He says, this is what you must do to be saved. And if you want to talk about how, I'd be thrilled to talk to you. Give me a call this week. Come talk to me after service. Let go of leading your life. Believe in Jesus. Ask Him for salvation. Ask Him and you will be saved. And if you do, the glory will be God's for bringing you to salvation. That's what we learn here. Let's bow together. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. You are holy. You are worthy. And we ask you for grace and mercy this day. We ask you for the grace and mercy of knowing that all that you are is perfect. We ask you for the grace that we might surrender to you and not be led by self. God, have mercy. Have mercy. For those who don't know you, I pray you'll bring them to know you. For those who do know you, I pray that we'll give you all the glory for that fact. Help us to treasure you above everything else And God, even this week, would you reveal to us in our own hearts and in our own lives those places where we treasure things above you? Where we demand our way instead of yours? God, be glorified in us. Change us and grow us. Make a radical difference in who we are and what we treasure. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.